The reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 12. You'll find it on page 977 in the Pew Bible. Chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what the prophet spoke. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out, till he leads justice to victory. In his In his name, the nations will put their hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, please. It would be great if you could have that open in front of you. I know it says we're meant to be doing a longer passage. There was two bits of paper going around, one saying a long passage, one saying a short passage. I've prepared a sermon on the shorter. (laughs) That doesn't mean my sermon will be shorter. Of course not. Let's pray together. Loving Father, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. But Lord, we know your word came in order it might transform this world. So we pray that your word would transform us and through us might be the means of the transforming of your world. Amen. I don't know if any of you saw a cartoon that was doing the rounds this week. It was by Matt, the Daily Telegraph's uh, resident cartoonist. There were two university students walking along, and one is clearly asking the other one what they're studying at university. Oh, I'm studying politics. The course covers the period from 8am on Thursday until lunchtime on Friday. They used to say that a week is a long time in politics, but now it seems just a day. My goodness. Last weekend, all our talk was about the decision to leave. This weekend, it's who's going to lead us through this next crucial stage as we leave? Who's going to lead our national life? Who's politically going to hold those to account who are in governments? There is, we would all agree, a leadership vacuum. Everyone trying to choose who's the best to lead us in this next stage. But what kind of leader should we look for? What do you associate with people of power these days? What kind of leader should we trust these days? It was Lord Acton at the end of the 19th century who coined the phrase, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. It was in a letter that he wrote to Bishop Mandel Crichton in 1897. The full saying goes like this, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. Discuss. Well, whatever the truth is, Matthew wants us to focus on what absolute power should look like. What does great leadership look like? See, throughout his gospel, Matthew has been arguing that Jesus is the absolute sovereign, the most powerful king. Jesus is greater than King David. Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
And we're moving towards the climax, the very end of the gospel, when we will read that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, that all authority is his. He has absolute power. And of course, in the previous passage, we saw that absolute power over nature, over disease, the power to determine the rules of life being Jesus's. And yet, says Matthew, Jesus is unlike any other powerful leader or ruler you'll find on this earth. You see, faced with Jesus, Matthew immediately's mind goes back to the prophecy of Isaiah. He quotes here, you'll see in a, the most of our passage is a quote from Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. It's one of the pictures that there are sort of four images of God's servant in Isaiah, the king that God is going to send to establish his rule, to save and restore his people. And chapter 42 begins a long section that goes right the way through to chapter 53 of Isaiah, speaking of this servant of God, this one who has all authority. And so that's what we're going to look at together now. But first thing we need to spot what's going on. Jesus is withdrawing, as we see, from a heated debate that's broken out over the healing of a man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees want him dead. But this is not the right time for him to be captured and killed. See, timing is everything in Jesus' mission and in God's plan. Paul tells us that Jesus came in the fullness of time in Galatians. And John tells us that Jesus, at only at the right time, would then go and leave this world. My time has not yet come. You see, that's why he leaves the situation in the synagogue. That's why he asks everyone to keep quiet and not to make him known. He quietly slips away. Which immediately makes Jesus, uh, sorry, immediately makes Matthew think of that passage in Isaiah. It's there in verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Yes, Jesus is a powerful king. But Jesus has not come to make a big deal of himself. There is no, here I am, King Jesus, look at me. Quick, someone call Sky News. Someone get Laura Kunzberg down. I'm ready to give my press conference right now. There's no big flashy buses with manifesto promises on the side of it. There's no touring every TV studio you can possibly find. Instead, Jesus retreats behind the cameras. He'll do his work, as important as it is, but he'll do it without dramatic flair, but with purpose and perfect timing. See, the kingdom of God is powerful, but it is power shown in a very different way. Remember Jesus rose into the city on a donkey. Power comes in a very different way. This is not flashy. You see, actually, I think the church has often tried very hard to do, uh, do its business the way the world does, by trying to get flashy, by trying to get things out there in the way everybody else does. Do you remember uh, the, the adverts on the Lord's Prayer into cinemas, and then immediately we get slapped down? Do you remember adverts on buses in London and immediately atheists get on and stick their things on the side? It kind of never really works when the church tries to do what the world around does. Well, maybe that's the point. Maybe the way we're going to make known Christ is not through the big flashy stuff. 
Maybe there's no point us trying to compete with every other big hoarding and TV advert because that is never the way the kingdom of God operates. There's a different way that Jesus does his business. He runs counterculturally. See, and actually, there is only one person whose opinion matters to him. You see, behind so much of all that big noise and bravado we see in our political campaigning right now is because it matters what people think of these people. And therefore, almost are prepared to say anything. (laughs) Now, please don't hear me write off every politician because I do not want to do that. I would never want their job in a million years. But it is the danger of the big words because they matter. It matters to them what people think about them. So the image is portrayed, but Jesus doesn't care what people think about him. There is only one opinion that matters. Do you see? I will put uh, uh, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. That is all that matters to Jesus. He doesn't care about public opinion. He only cares about the opinion of his heavenly father, the one who loves him, who delights in him, who chose him. I know how easy it is in leadership to care more about what other people think of me than what God thinks of me. Or maybe in your own job, at where you are, do you care more about what your boss thinks or your colleague thinks than what God thinks? Do we sometimes end up acting and doing things in a way because we want the attention of others rather than doing what will bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, leadership in the kingdom of God is very different. Secondly, I think we see Jesus' actions remind Matthew of that passage in Isaiah. Of course, Matthew's just seen and just told us about the incident of uh, Jesus doing that mercy healing of the man with a shriveled hand. And of course, Jesus puts right what is wrong. That's the whole picture of that. Here is the merciful Jesus who puts right what is wrong. And it's interesting in this passage of Isaiah, twice the word justice comes and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Later on, verse 20, till he has brought justice through to victory. What is justice? It is putting right what is wrong. Justice is putting right what is wrong. So let me ask you, is Brexit right or is Brexit wrong? Discuss, and I'm leaving. The truth is, during the debate, I don't think anyone really knew, did they? And certainly truth is, after the debate and after the decision, still none of us really know whether it will prove to be good or not good, wise or unwise. In one sense, all human decisions have a question mark by them. They must do. Because there is only one who can restore this world. There is only one who gives true hope in this world. And that will only come on the day when Jesus returns and puts everything right. And it is coming. There is a day of victory coming. truth is, if we put our trust in politicians and human leaders, if we base our security on who they are and what they offer and what they do, we will always be disappointed, always. We will always be fearful 
I've been really struck by the fear that I've discovered in so many over these last seven days in ways I've never heard people talk about fear before. I don't know whether it's founded or not founded. The future will show us. The truth is we just don't know. But as Christians, no, not just as Christians, look here, as nations, our hope, verse 21, must be in the one who has true power, who will one day establish true justice and fairness and rightness. These are dramatic times. Our salvation and our security will not come as a result of a Tory leadership campaign or a Labour leadership campaign. If that's where you put your hope, then you will be in trouble. But no, our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will bring justice, the one who does bring hope. It is only the powerful name of Jesus. He alone is Lord, surely, isn't he? So at those moments when I found myself getting my knickers in a twist and putting things on Facebook I probably shouldn't put on, I've had to step back and remind myself, who in the end's in charge here? Kingdoms have come and gone. The Greek empires, the Roman empires, Egyptians, they have come and they have gone, but one name stands supreme, quietly, in the backgrounds. The one who will bring victory. And then next, I think, something else of Jesus strikes Matthew and takes him back to Isaiah. And is there, he says, here is my servant. Whom I've chosen. You see, Jesus comes uh, to do leadership in a different way. We often call uh, our leaders as public servants. There's always that slight uncomfortableness with any of us in leadership is who are we serving? Are we serving those who will make us feel better, those who will vote us in? Are we serving our own egos, our own desires, our own wants, our own positions? I guess it's all a bit of a mix, but Jesus comes as servants. God's servant will serve. And look at verse 20, who he serves. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. Jesus comes to serve the weak, to serve those who are brood reeds. You see, a reed is a symbol of weakness. It's flimsy. A bruised reed is a picture of something utterly useless, something that looks beyond repair. He will serve people who are like bruised reeds and smouldering wicks, a candle about to go out, something that has very little life in it. This servant will serve people who look like they're about to be snapped off or snuffed out. The good for nothing. We might call them the losers, the marginalised. It's to those sort of people among the nations, to the kind of people we read about in chapter 11, those who are weary and heavy laden, who forever feel they're falling short, who are just like Jean, or was it Joan? Jean, Joan. Who constantly look back and think, I can't do it. I just can't do it. It is to those people that the Lord Jesus comes to serve them to bring them rest, to bring them justice. And the extraordinary thing is that Jesus enlists those. He takes the bruised reeds, he takes the smouldering wicks, and it is they that he leads in justice through to victory. What an extraordinary thing. 
he enlists in his army a bunch of weaklings. Bruised reeds. What a strange behavior. Would any of the great leaders of the world have allowed bruised reeds and smoldering wicks as soldiers in their armies? But I remind you again, those great kingdoms with their great armies, whether they be Greek, Roman or Nazi Germany, have all come to an end. Remember Paul said, God chose the foolish to shame the wise. Jesus' way of powerful leadership is utterly different to the world's. Jesus humbly comes to serve the humble, the lowly, the nobodies. I'm going to tell you a story, and someone here knows about it because they were there for part of it yesterday. And I'm in no way saying anything about this school, I promise you. Yesterday I spoke at a school leavers service. It was a lovely school. I had a really lovely time. The service was great, and then I preached. In the sermon, I described a dramatic moment of imagining the leavers service at the school, the school being prepared, ready for the amazing visits of a guest of honour, The headmaster and the chair of governors and everyone was waiting out on the lawn. Suddenly, a load of outriders came on their bikes and a limo stopped. The door opened. There was lots of flag waving and then suddenly it all stopped. Mouths dropped open. People started to feel very embarrassed. The queen steps out, dressed in a boiler suit, wellies on her feet, a shower cap affair on her head, a bucket with bleach and a cloth in one hand, wielding a toilet brush in the other. And she says, would you kindly show me to the lavatories? I've come to clean them. And I said, you can imagine the shock, can't you? I said, headmaster, what would you do? I said, quite right, let the chair of governors deal with it. And I went on to try and show that the shock of that day was nothing compared to the day when Jesus was at supper with his friends. Before they ate, he got up, he put a towel around his waist, he took some water and a cloth and he knelt at their feet and he began to wash them. He began to do the one thing that only the lowest of the low slave would ever be allowed to do, so demeaning a task was it. But here is the God with absolute power, the one who created the universe, who will now serve by humbling himself, by making himself nothing, who would do the most demeaning task. And then I had the most awkward experience afterwards. I got invited to lunch, and I went to what was clearly quite an exclusive lunch. And we sat and ate the most beautiful food. And I sat with a kind of bishop-type person on one side and other dignitaries around me, MPs, all sorts were there. And I watched as the ladies brought food around. And I just thought, hang on. I know why this is happening. And I'm not arguing, but in God's kingdom, this would be different. They would be sat here. And we, the so-called high and mighty, would be serving them at table. Somehow, the world is utterly different to the kingdom that God brought. I don't complain at that school because it's the same everywhere, isn't it? And I don't say it as a criticism. I simply say it just brought into stark contrast to me what Jesus was saying. Now, in his kingdom, it is the lowly who are served. It is the lowly who are fed at the high table. It is the lowly who are given the choice food to eat. 
That is how Jesus uses his power. And I think there's one last detail that makes Matthew immediately think of that passage in Isaiah, and it it comes actually in the verse that comes just before this passage. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. You see, Matthew knows that the conclusion of that part of uh, Isaiah, as it gets towards chapter 53, is this the great servant of God, this great king, this great anointed leader will actually end up suffering. He'll be bruised for our iniquities. And actually, what Matthew immediately sees, the reason why suddenly this all comes to his mind, this bit of Isaiah, is because suddenly the outstretched hands of Jesus begin to form a shadow. Here the conversation of the cross starts to form in the back room, the plots to bring down the leader. This is no mere verbal backstabbing. This is backstabbing and front-stabbing for real. Of course, in Matthew's gospel, the action will intensify as the clash of authorities get louder and louder. And soon, even the crowds who stand here amazed at Jesus will soon join the clergy-led chant of crucify him, crucify him. Of course, the cross of Jesus is the moment, the moment when the full power and glory of the one who created the universe is seen. And how is it seen? It is seen in someone who humbles himself to death, even the death of a cross. And he does so so that he might serve the deepest needs of the marginalised and lowly of this world, to restore and give hope for the lost, the marginalised, to physically and emotionally and spiritually heal the withered. See, power in Jesus' kingdom is shown in costly, sacrificial service. That is what true leadership, true kingship, true power looks like in the kingdom of God. And if that is how our leader acts, well, then it tells us how we are to act too. Do you know what struck me just as I was preparing this yesterday? When it comes to leaving the European Union or the EU, what if it does lead to economic difficulty? What if it does lead to harder times? What will we do as Christians? Will we blame the politicians? Will we wag our finger at those who are on the Leave campaign? Is that what we'll do? And it suddenly struck me, no. We will do what the people of God have always been called on to do. To ask those who are struggling to stretch out their hands and do everything in our power to show them mercy and love and compassion and to serve them, to feed the poor, to care for the sick, to visit the lonely, to heal the broken. So whatever happens over the next few months or years, the question that faces us as a church is this, where are the bruised reeds in this community? Where are the candles nearly snuffed out in this village and in this town? Those feeling useless, feeling hopeless, feeling fearful, lonely, invisible. And then how are we going to sacrificially serve them that we might point them to the one who has sacrificially served them and will give them hope for eternity? And to do so without trumpet fanfare, without great hoardings telling everyone how amazing we are for doing what we're doing. I heard this week of someone in our church who was feeling incredibly low and at home, feeling very lonely. 
and actually feeling very useless. She sat in my office this week and told me all about it. But she also told me how someone in this congregation arrived on her doorstep with some chocolates. And what was most amazing was that those chocolates were quite unusual, yet they were the ones that that lady's father used to bring home to her when she was a child. Suddenly she felt God loved her, she said, more than she had ever realized. I heard yesterday of a lady who went to the Forget-Me-Not Cafe. I was told that she went incredibly nervous, really going out on her own, but who absolutely loved it. And now wants to go to Coffee Connect and 12 to 2, and suddenly her world has opened up. What is powerful in this world? What makes a difference in this world? And it is not big leadership and big hoardings and big promises. It is the people of God following their master quietly, showing acts of love and service without making a big trumpet fanfare. Reaching out to the brewery through humble acts of loving mercy. That is our hope. That is the hope of the nations. I find that exciting. Amen.